please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. As you turn to Luke chapter 2, just remind you, as I'm sure Ben's already mentioned, to very carefully look at that insert that's in your bulletin this morning. A lot of major things going on in the life of our church. The major uh, banquet we'll be having in a few weeks, Sunday, February 21st, and we're asking people to RSVP for that by next Sunday. And also, of course, just this, this major event of establishing elders for our church and becoming a church, having a church constitution and bylaws and all those, those uh, fun and exciting things as well. I'm sure many of you were just uh, transfixed this week as you read through the doctrinal statement and bylaws and things like that. Uh, but I would encourage you to look through those. And someone, several people have asked me this week, what's the, what's the major difference between the constitution that Bethany Baptist Church had and and Bethany Community Church will have, or what, what are the differences? And, and the differences are, are mostly very minor. Uh, I've gone around to the different Sunday school classes and, and talked about how we're going to have a different method of selecting elders. That's probably the primary difference in a different context here. Uh, but most of the changes are, are pretty minor, and, and uh, often the things even that were, I would describe our Constitution as a little bit simplified. We're, we're taking some things out that, that we will probably still do, process-wise, but it's just not going to be in the bylaws that we do. And so I encourage you to look through that, make suggestions. There have been several great suggestions that you, many of you have made, questions that you've asked that we hadn't thought through. So just encourage you to continue to do that <coughs> Excuse me, as we think about uh, this, this process of becoming a, a church, a legal uh, entity here on in, in, uh, May 2nd of, of 2010. Big, big day coming up, and it's just neat to see how God is, is growing our church and continues to, to bless us for his glory. Well, please uh, stand with me as we read Luke chapter 2 together, beginning in verse 41. Luke chapter 2, reading from the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 41. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time of worshiping you this morning. We've already engaged in considering your character, the attributes of your son, Jesus. As our hearts, I hope, have been turned more fully to you, I pray that you'd forgive us of those things that 
have separated us from you, caused us to focus even more intently upon the truths found in your word that give us life and peace and hope. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. In your world, and in my own, there are many requests made of us, many demands made upon us, some reasonable and and some not so reasonable. I'm reminded of the story of a man who was woken at 3 o'clock in the morning by a banging on his front door. Hopped out of bed, wearily trudged down the stairs and opened the front door, and there's a man standing on his porch soaking wet and the man says, sir, can you please help me? Will you please come give me a push? The man looks out, first man looks out, sees the, the rain. It's three o'clock in the morning. He says, forget it, buddy. Shuts the door, walks back upstairs, lays down in bed. And his wife said, who was that? He said, uh, some guy, broken down car, wants me to come give him a push. His wife said, well, honey, you were in the exact same situation last week. You get down there, and you, you help that guy out with his car. Fine, he says. He walks back down the stairs. He opens the front door again. It's pitch dark. The rain's coming down even harder now. And he, he looks out, and he says, hey, hey buddy, I, I'll give you that push. Where are you? The voice in the darkness says, I'm over here in the swing. This thing on? Yeah, okay. Uh, lots of demands are made upon us, uh, some reasonable, uh, some not so reasonable. Many demands are, are made upon us, and if you're like me, people ask you sometimes how you're doing, and you think, boy, I'm just, I'm so busy right now. There are so many things that are, that are going on in my life. I, I just feel sometimes overwhelmed, and, and maybe even this morning as you're sitting there, you're, you're in your seat, and you think about all the demands that other people are, are making upon you, or maybe you're even making of yourself, and you think, okay, man, there's, there's so much that's going on in my life right now with, with my kids. There's so much that they need, and, and I'm just not giving them all of my attention and time that, that they need right now. And you, you think about your situation at, at work, and you think, boy, there's so much that my employer demands of me, and there's this project that I have coming up this week. Or, or maybe you're in school, and you have this, this uh homework assignment that's due tomorrow morning, and you've kind of procrastinated all week, and you're thinking, ah, I've got to get that done by tomorrow. There's a million things, perhaps, that are going on in your life, and some of you, right now, as you're sitting there in your nice, comfortable theater seating, are thinking, even as I'm talking about all the things you've got to get done. And some of you, if you're like me, you've even begun jotting down a to-do list on your notes, and you're, you're thinking about, boy, you know, I hope this thing kind of wraps up. I've got a Super Bowl party to plan for tonight. I've got a lot of things going on. Oftentimes, we are overwhelmed by all the things that are going on in our life. It seems like it's hopeless. There's, there's no way we're ever going to be able to accomplish all the things, all the demands that are placed upon us by ourselves and by others. What I hope that you get out of our time this morning, as we look at this story of of Jesus in the temple, what I hope you get out of this story is a certain sense of, of freedom. You have the ability to accomplish what 
God calls you to accomplish. There are a lot of things that that other people are going to be able to, to ask you to do. There are a lot of things that other people are going to want you to do. But I want you to leave this morning with, with this great hope. I can accomplish what God asks me to do. As I make God the primary priority in my life, I have great confidence that he's going to give me the ability to do what he has called me to do. And as I focus upon him as my great priority, as I focus upon him as the object of worship in my life, I'm going to be able to accomplish other things, yes, but they're going to flow from that great priority I place upon worshiping God. That's what I hope you get out of our time together this morning as we look at the story of Jesus in the temple. Well, let's turn to the text. And this text, I believe, is a text that's full of a lot of tension. It's a story that, as I read it, makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know if it makes you uncomfortable as well. Here's why I think it makes me a little uncomfortable. Let me kind of walk through it with you. What we have in this story, first of all, are two really good parents, And these two really good parents have the perfect child. Two really good parents. Why do we know that Mary and Joseph are are good? Well, think about all that's happened in the text so far in the story of Luke. Remember, uh, Joseph has been willing to take Mary as his wife. We see that in the book of Matthew, actually. But Joseph takes upon the responsibility of, of caring for Mary Mary is a person who willingly takes upon herself what God calls her to do, and as she encounters difficult circumstances in her life, remember what she does. She takes God's word and is able to take God's word, meditate upon it, and apply it in whatever situation she finds herself in. She's a good woman who loves the Lord. Mary and Joseph in the story that we looked at last week are are people who are devout to God's word. They do exactly what God tells them to do. And so you're dealing with a good mom and a good dad, two people who really love God and who have this perfect child. Verse 40 from last week says that the child grew, Jesus grew, and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Two good parents, perfect child. Look at the text this week, and we see that theme continued. It says in verse 41, now his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year. Now, why would they do that? Well, Deuteronomy 16. In Deuteronomy 16, God's word says this. It tells tells God's people to keep the Passover. And then in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 16, it says this. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, but at that place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And so Jesus' parents read Deuteronomy 16 and know that a person who's observing the law goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus' parents, being good people, go to Jerusalem. They're obedient. Not only do they go, they go every year. It's customary for them. They're also good parents, we see, in that they take Jesus with them. It's interesting that Jesus is 12 years old at this time. When he turns 13, he's going to be, in Jewish culture, deemed old enough to be responsible to keep God's law on his own. And so what a good Jewish parent would do is this. They would take their child at a very young age and instruct them in the things of the Lord, and especially as they got older, would allow them to begin to participate in in some of the rituals and some of the, the observances of God's commandments, training them 
to be able to do so on their own as they reach the ages of maturity. And so Mary and Joseph, good parents, we've seen in the past, we see that they're good parents also in their observance of God's law. They go and they celebrate the Passover and they're training Jesus to be able to do the same. Good parents, right? Not only that, they're not casual in their celebration of the feast of the Passover. It says in verse 43, when the feast was ended, that is, they stayed the entire week. They Some people would just come, they'd offer their sacrifice and and get out of there. Mary and Joseph are not casual worshipers of God. They stay the entire week. Okay? So far, so good. Now here's where a little bit of the tension begins to enter the story. They've celebrated the feast. The feast comes to the end. Remember, good parents, perfect child, verse 43 As they were returning, that is, they're getting ready to leave Jerusalem, go back to Nazareth, then you read this line. Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Huh? Jesus, it seems, intentionally makes the decision to not leave Jerusalem. It's a little odd. It makes you a little uncomfortable, and then Luke goes on, and I don't know about you, but I become a little bit more uncomfortable. Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and maybe the next line is going to be, and his parents said, have a good time, we'll see you later. No, and the next line says, and his parents did not know it. And what's more, they suppose, they assume that he's with the rest of the group. Jesus makes a decision to intentionally stay behind in Jerusalem, and there's a big group of people going from Jerusalem to Nazareth. It was customary to kind of travel in a big caravan. And his parents, what do they do? They assume that Jesus is with the rest of that group. And that word assume is a very interesting word. What it means is, is to have a mind, have your mind think something to be true, even if you don't have all the information. It's a word that's used frequently in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter, let's see here, Acts chapter 21, verse 29, people suppose that Paul to be dead is dead, and they they drag him out of the ground, and uh, drag him out of the town, rhymes with ground. Acts 17, 27, uh, Paul says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to, to think or assume that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We don't assume those things. Jesus uses this word, as he talks about his own ministry and his own teaching. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, look, don't assume that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is teaching, and he says this in verse 34 of Matthew chapter 10. He says, do not think, do not suppose, do not assume that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And so Jesus, in his teaching, sometimes challenges people's assumptions concerning him. What you believe to be true about me is not necessarily true. Jesus' parents, here in Luke chapter 2, assume something about Jesus. They suppose that Jesus is going to do exactly what the rest of the group does. The week is over, group leaves. Jesus' parents don't go to him. 
they don't say, hey, Jesus, you're, you're leaving with the group, right? You know that we're leaving and, and you're going to do that, right? They don't instruct him, Jesus, leave with the group. They assume certain things to be true about Jesus' conduct. Jesus will behave like the rest of the group behaves. That's a very dangerous thing to think, right? It's very dangerous to assume things about the person of Jesus, and yet in our culture we do it all the time. I don't think Jesus would approve of that, or I don't think Jesus would want me to be unhappy, or I don't think this about Jesus, or I don't assume this about Jesus. It's a dangerous thing to assume things about Jesus. Mary and Joseph assume that Jesus is going to to go with the group, and Jesus doesn't. The story goes on. The day goes. They're traveling. At the end of the day, they come to the place where they're stopping for the day, and Mary and Joseph begin to look around for Jesus. He's not with their relatives. He's not with their friends. And at some point, Mary and Joseph realize Jesus isn't there at all. Everyone in the caravan is looking for them and Jesus for him, and Jesus can't be found. And Mary and Joseph begin to think about all the possibilities. I mean, you're talking about the perfect kid. What happened to him? A few weeks ago, Whitney was in Walmart with four children, and, and I, my contention is this. With four children, it's inevitable that one's going to turn up missing every now and then. Woody's in the Walmart with these four children, and she's checking out, and, and Noah, our, our four-year-old, decides to look at an end-cap display, and he's kind of looking at the end-cap display. Whitney finishes her transaction, then she goes around to get Noah, and there's no Noah. She looks to the left, looks down the next checkout line, and he's nowhere to be found. Her eyes begin to scan the different aisles just very quickly, seeing if he's within eyesight, and he's not within eyesight. And you know that feeling, right, if you're a parent and you've ever lost a child. Every second seems to get to kind of slow down, and as each second goes by and you look in more places, there's more places that that child is not. And there's, all, there's a million different possibilities of where your child is, but as you look at each different place and the child isn't there, the bad things that could have happened to that child seem to get magnified, and those options become more in the forefront of your mind. And Whitney begins to, to frantically look around the Walmart for her child, and she asks the customer service people, can you help me find my child? Mary and Joseph frantically look around for Jesus. They can't find him. They have gone a day, they take a day and go back to Jerusalem, and then this third day they're looking around for Jesus and they're becoming more and more frantic as they search for him. Then we come to verse 46. It says this, after three days they found him in the temple. (laughs) There's Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? He's sitting among the teachers And he's engaged in a rabbinic dialogue with them. The custom of the day in which teachers would teach students through a series of questions and answers. A question would be asked and an answer would be given. And then a more specific question would be asked based upon the answer. And a more specific answer would be given. And then a more specific question, more specific answer, back and forth and back and forth. And there is Jesus engaged in this dialogue with these teachers. Now... It's a hard thing, I think, for us to understand exactly what's taking place here because we're talking about God himself. 
God himself is engaged in a teaching session where people are teaching him about himself. Now, remember, Jesus is fully God. At the same time, he's fully human. And as a human, he sometimes put limitations upon, I believe, his, his access to his divine abilities. And so Jesus, catch this, Jesus learned things about himself. As people taught him God's word, he learned about God's word. But think about this as well. He learned God's word with a perfect, sinless mind. And so he was able to to grasp things about God that we would not be able to grasp like he is able to grasp. But if God finds it beneficial to study his word, how much more do you and I need to study God's word? Jesus is sitting there engaged in this dialogue, and people, it says, are astonished. They're amazed as Jesus answers and asks these profound questions. Learning. Some other people are also astonished, but not quite as positively. Mary and Joseph come upon Jesus there. They've been looking for him. They've been separated from him for three days. They've thought about all these possibilities, and there he is, engaged in some conversation about the law. Mary, it seems, in the text, is a little worked up, and understandably so, right? You know, there's that emotional release as you find your child, if you've been looking for your child. Whenever Whitney was in Walmart, there was an announcement given. A man began to, to bring Noah to her. He said, hey, I, I heard you're missing a kid. I found this one. Is there a match? She said, yes. When he told me there, there were kind of tears streaming down her face, there's this emotion. Oh, here he is. I, my little baby, I've missed you. Well, then what's the next question, right? Where have you been? What were you thinking? That's what Mary says to Jesus here. Listen to this, and guys, this is where I think the tension in the story gets so thick you can just squeeze it. Son, why have you treated us so? You're a good kid. What's the deal? Why would you treat us like this? Don't you know, or behold, Dad and I, your father and I, have been searching for you in great distress. That word there, distress, means this mental anguish. We've been looking for you. Why would you do this to us? And I believe it's at this point in the story where we realize there's not going to be this nice little neat bow tied on the story. It would have been nice if, if, if uh, Mary comes upon Jesus and she said, Jesus! Didn't you know we were looking for you? And Jesus said, yeah, remember you said for me to wait here for Uncle Benjamin. He never showed, so I've been here exactly like he told me to. Oh, right, I forgot about that. Sorry about that. Let's go. That's not what happens. What we see, Mary, Joseph, good parents, great parents, Jesus, perfect child. But what we see is this, and here's where I think we become a little uncomfortable, and this is where the tension in the story is. What, what Mary wants to happen is not the same as what Jesus wants to happen. Mary's priorities, what Mary thinks is the right thing to do, is different than what Jesus thinks the right thing to do is. That's big. 
it's not the only time it's going to happen in Jesus' life. We're going to see this later in, in Luke, and we, it's described more fully in Mark chapter 3. But remember, there's going to be a time whenever people are kind of saying some bad things about Jesus. They're accusing him of being demon-possessed. They're saying he's out of his mind. And his family is going to say, oh, we want you out of that, Jesus. And, and Mary and his brothers are going to come and try to, to, to take him away and get him out of that ministry. There are times in Mary's life where she does not like the ministry that Jesus has been called to where her priorities and God's priorities are at odds. And I believe this is one of those situations. Why would you do this to us, Jesus? Don't you know that your father and I have been in great mental anguish over this? And this is what Jesus says in reply. He says, why? Why were you looking for me? Your assumption was incorrect. (laughs) Didn't you know, he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Literally what he's saying there is, didn't you know that I must be about the things of my father, in the things of my father? Wouldn't you understand, wouldn't you, if you rightly knew my character, rightly knew my mission as, as I know you do, wouldn't you rightly have known that this is where I'd be? couple things there about Jesus' statement there that are very interesting. One, he's very self-aware of who he is. Mary has said, your father and I, and Jesus very gently corrects her, didn't you know that I'd be about my father's business? Jesus loves his mom and dad. We're going to see that in just a moment, how he resolves some of the tension in the story, but make no mistake about it. Jesus rightly understands where his ultimate priority in life lies. That is in worship of his heavenly father, being devoted to the things that God calls him to do. Whenever Whitney found Noah, there's that emotional release, and then the question, where were you? What were you doing? And you know what Noah said? He said, well, I couldn't see you guys, and so I thought maybe you went back to the toy section. Which is what anyone in Walmart is naturally going to gravitate toward. So, so I just went back to the toy section hoping you guys would be there. Okay, You go where your heart desires you to go, right? And so Noah, Noah thought for sure mom will be hanging out in the toy section. She wasn't, surprisingly enough. Jesus goes where his heart naturally inclines him to go. He's in the temple talking about the things of God. And if the other people want to leave and go on the caravan, great. This is where he's going to be. He says, look, didn't, didn't you know me? Don't you know my heart? Then here's the resolution to the story in terms of this relationship with his parents. You think, well, well I guess things are toast with his parents now. <laughs> Man, they're going to be, no, listen. It says, they don't understand the saying that he spoke to them. They didn't fully understand that. But listen to what happened. He went with them nonetheless. He went back to Nazareth. And what did he do? He was submissive to them. And his mother, good mother that she is, treasured up these things in her heart, all these things in her heart. Mary responds absolutely the right way. Jesus submits to his parents perfectly, but notice his priority in life is God, and as he worships God and makes him the central focus of his life, 
The other things flow from that. In other words, Mary and Joseph are not the focus of Jesus' life. The things that they desire for him to do are not the focus of his life, but as he worships God and is focused on the things of God, submission to them flows from that. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you four truths that I believe we glean from this text as we consider Christ-like prioritization. What does it look like to focus on God and have him be the center of our life? What are the implications of that? Four truths that I believe we see regarding Christ-like prioritization. First truth is this. You cannot accomplish everything in life. Don't try to. You cannot accomplish everything in life. Don't try to do it. This story, to me, has so much tension because there's two really good things at odds here. It is a good thing to obey mom and dad, and not just obey mom and dad, but to anticipate what they desire. It's a good thing to to do whatever it is that mom and dad want you to do. That is a good thing. But it is also a good thing, and it is a far better thing to do what God desires you to do. In this story, those things are at odds. What I take from that, our time is finite. There are going to be times in our lives where two or three or four good options come up with things that we can be involved in, and we're not going to be able to do them all. In fact, far more often, I believe it's the case that we're sometimes involved in things that are not good things for us to be involved in. That is, our conflict is between two or three really not very productive things for us to be involved in in our lives. It's easy for us to get enamored with the things of the world and priorities that other people are are placing upon us instead of rightly understanding what God has called us to do. There's a great short story by Leo Tolstoy called How Much Land Does a Man Need? Maybe you've read that before. But in the story, there's a man named Pahom, and he's a, a village peasant, and he becomes... He becomes wrapped up in this idea of getting more and more land, and he gets more land, and he gets more land, and finally he's introduced to this group of people that are going to give him as much land as he can walk around in a single day. They say, we'll sell you uh, as much land as you can walk around in a day for a thousand rubles, and Pahom says, that sounds great. He's become so passionate about getting land that everything else in his life takes a, a, a back seat to that priority. Pahom, the deal is he has to begin at a certain point and then walk around as much land, and he has to be back at that point from which he began by the end of the day, by the time the sun sets. He begins at sunrise, and he begins to to walk around this perimeter making markers, and and, uh, every so often he'll see a a nice little glen or a little area that he thinks looks so nice, and so he'll take a little extra time and go around that land and make sure he encompasses it. And as the day goes on, he realizes he may not make it back to the starting point. And so he begins to, to run faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And finally, as the sun sets in near exhaustion, he makes it back to that original point. He places his foot upon the land, and then what happens? He falls down dead. His passion for this acquiring of of land had cost him his life. Remember the story's title is How Much Land Does a Man Need? And Tolstoy ends the story with Pahom's burial. And the last line of the story is this. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. 
how much land does a man need? About six feet. (laughs) So often, so often we try to accomplish so much and we forget what our primary priority in life is. Pursuing the things of God. Pursuing other things will cost us our spiritual life. Pursue God. Believe that this prevents us from doing things that are not important and also allows us to exercise our spiritual gifts in the most effective way possible. So the first truth is you cannot accomplish everything in life. Don't try to. Secondly, I believe this is true. Uh, You may cause pain to others as you follow God. Prepare for it. You may very well cause pain to others as you follow God. Prepare for it. Jesus causes real anguish to his parents in his pursuit of God. It's worth it. It's worth it. A few weeks ago, you've, you've heard from Pat and Rachel Emmert several times here at Bethany Community Church. There are missionaries who have just left for the Middle East and I was at Bethany Baptist Church their last time there. There was a commissioning service for them. And the evening after the commissioning service was over, I was kind of leaving the building. And I, I went into the sanctuary to say bye to, to Pat and Rachel, knowing that I wouldn't see them for, for many more years. And, and I, I came upon the scene of, of their parents saying goodbye to their children. And there were tears. There was crying. There was real anguish as Pat's parents, his brothers, and Rachel's parents, and her brother and sisters, and the people that were saying goodbye to her. There was real anguish in their hearts as they said goodbye to their children. As their children left for a very dangerous ministry. Is it why would they do that? Why would Pat and Rachel cause such anguish in the hearts of their parents? Don't they love their parents? That they do, but it is inevitable. That as we pursue God, it's inevitable that other people are sometimes going to feel discomfort. As you make it your desire to follow after the Lord, your friends are sometimes going to suffer for it. If you have children, your children are sometimes going to suffer because you have decided to follow God. You may cause pain to others as you follow God. Prepare for it. Often our tendency is to say, well, this isn't the path I'm going to go down because I don't want to cause discomfort to other people. That's not a Christ-like prioritization. Third truth is this. The third truth is is this, and this is one that strikes home to me. You may open yourself up to the criticism of others as you follow God. Deal with it. You may cause yourself to be opened up to the criticism of others as you decide to follow God. Deal with it. (laughs) Jesus had never sinned against his parents. (laughs) Jesus was the perfect child. Mary and Joseph were very, very good parents, very godly man, very godly woman. And still, in that circumstance, Jesus is opened up to the censure and critique as he decided to follow God. You and I must be prepared for the criticism of others as we decide to follow God as well. There are going to be times in your life where your your friends say, look, even friends from this church, and they, they, they look at the decisions you're making and they say, look, 
Don't you think that's kind of an unwise thing to do? There's going to be family members that talk to you and say, look, I, I know what you're doing. Don't you think that uh, investing in that, in those missionaries, is kind of a, a bad financial decision? Don't you think you're a little strict with your children? Don't you think you're a little too into this, this God thing? There are going to be people who are very close to you that criticize you as you seek to follow God. In fact, it's inevitable There's no path that you choose in life that will not open you up to some criticism. I tell this to parents who are trying to decide where they should send their children. I say, look, it doesn't matter where you send your kid. Someone's still going to be upset about it. Public school, private school, homeschool. Someone's going to think you're making a really bad decision. It's inevitable. That's my encouragement to you, by the way. People are going to judge you no matter what. You're going to open yourself up to the criticism of people no matter what you do. So why not? Make it your passion to first and foremost follow God. People desire the approval of others. Let me give you a little bit of a quiz. This is from a book called Pleasing People by Lou Priolo. It's a very, very good book talking about our our tendency to desire the approval of people. And he, he gives a little quiz that you can take to decide whether or not you're a people pleaser. I'll just read a couple of them. He says, uh, this is whether or not this is true of you. If it's true, you're more likely to be a people pleaser. He says, I listen with anxious attentiveness when others discuss that which pleases or displeases them. That is, you're very careful to find out what they like or don't like. He says, I, I desire, my desire for a good reputation is based on how such a reputation will benefit me rather than how that good reputation will serve as a means to God's greater glory. I avoid conflicts rather than trying to resolve them. I show favoritism. I long, listen to this, I long to be noticed more than I long to be godly. Those are all true. Kind of a quiz to determine whether or not you're a people pleaser. He goes on and he gives some characteristics of a people pleaser. Let me read a few of these. Characteristics of a people pleaser. One, a people pleaser fears the displeasure of man more than the displeasure of God. He fears the displeasure of man more than the displeasure of God. But what does Proverbs say? Proverbs 29, 25, the the fear of man brings a snare. A people pleaser desires, desires the praise of man above the praise of God. Matthew 23 talks about this. In fact, let me, let me turn there. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus addresses this directly. Verse 5 says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their factories broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. That is, these people do their work so that others will see them. They love the praise of men rather than the praises of God. A people pleaser also studies what it takes to please man as much as what it takes to please God. A people pleaser's speech is designed to entice and, and flatter others into thinking well of them. First Thessalonians 2, Paul says this, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a, a pretext for greed. God is witness. A people-pleaser is a respecter of persons. A a people-pleaser makes distinctions among people. A people-pleaser selfishly uses the wisdom and abilities and gifts that have been given to him 
for God's glory, instead uses them to benefit others for his own glory and personal benefit. A people pleaser invests more of his personal resources in establishing his own honor than he does in establishing God's honor. I don't know about you, but those things are very convicting to me. So often our tendency is to desire to avoid the criticism of others rather than the praise of God. Jesus rightly orients himself. And it's not that he is not submissive to his parents, but his passion for God is far greater than his desire to be recognized by others. Final truth here that I want us to consider is this. You're always able, you're always able to accomplish what God asks of you. Do it. I hope that's very encouraging to you. There are a lot of things that are going to be asked of you. There are things that your kids are going to want you to do. There are things, if you have kids, there are friends, if you have friends, that your friends are going to want you to do. There are many things that that others are going to desire you to do, and you can't do them all. The great truth in this text, the thing that comforts me, the thing that I find freedom here is I have the ability to do what God asks of me. And as I'm consumed with a desire for him, I'm going to be able to accomplish what he wants me to do. I think this means two things for us sometimes. It means that God is sometimes going to call you away from some things that other people may want you to be doing, good people, some, maybe even some ministries, maybe even uh, your, 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 your wonderful pastor is going to be wanting you to do some things, and God's saying, no, that's not what I'm calling you to do. That's what your wife wants you to do is not what I'm calling you to do. What your parents want you to do is not what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to do something else, and there may be some things you get called out of. Now, our tendency sometimes is to say, well, I'm so busy, I, I need me time. That means I just need to sit on the couch and, and eat some Cheetos. Okay? That's not what this means. The things that God calls you to do are, are full of joy, but they're also very demanding as well. And so that's the second part of this. The things that God calls you to do may be very demanding. It may call you to deeper ministry and greater joy in him simultaneously calling you out of some activities, out of some things, and into deeper ministry. I hope that is so freeing. We live in a culture that is just overwhelmed, and I don't think it's that we're overwhelmed. I think it's that we're under-worshiping. Our priority must be God. As we pursue God, we can have the great thrill of knowing that we're able to do that which God has called us to do through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and that through faith in him, we have the ability to be obedient to you and to pursue you. Father, here he is in your temple, engaged in learning about you and worship of you, and we too, through him, now have the ability to come and and, and sit at your feet and and learn more about you. And we pray that you'd help that to be our priority, our passion. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.